Hello, you're listening to the Leadership Woman podcast with me, Jill Savile. And today my guest is Jess Magicodemy, and she's all the way in Ireland. And uh, we met a few years ago, which you'll hear all about that. She's currently the director of the Human Sciences Studio, which sounds fascinating. But today, as always, we are going to start, Jess, from where you were born. So welcome. Thank you very much, Jill. So I was born in the wonderful Potteries, a city called Stoke-on-Trent, which is in England. And give me a taste of uh, what, what was it like growing up there? I probably had a contradictory growing up in some respects in that on the one hand, I was a doctor's daughter. I got sent to very good school. Um, I did ballet and I learned the piano from a very young age, but I was also the daughter of a single mother. Um, and grew up on a council estate in Stoke. So I existed between two different worlds and learned to both adapt and not be fully in both at the same time. Uh, two different worlds. That reminds me of a, a recent podcast I did with somebody else who was who had a foot in France and a foot in Morocco as she was mm-hmm. growing up. So two different worlds. And ballet and piano. I remember being sent to ballet to see if it could make me any less clumsy, but uh, it didn't. Yeah, I think I preferred tap where you could make a bit more noise and stomp around a bit. That was more my style. Yes, yes. And mine. Uh, I kept saying, Mum, why did you say, why ballet? But anyway, I also play the piano. So there we are. Who knew that we were connected in this way? So you grew up then divided between these two different worlds, two different families. And um, describe your your schooling then, your education. So it was a good education. My junior school was a a Catholic school, formerly run by nuns, but there there weren't any nuns there by the time I went. Um, And it was quite unusual to have a Catholic school in the UK. Um, I'm in Ireland now, and so it wasn't unusual, but obviously it was the Irish side of my family that really um, sent me to that school for that Catholic upbringing. Um, And then I went to a a private um, secondary school that I don't think I really liked and kicked up a bit of fuss and left to go to a state sixth form college where I was much happier and had friends and found found people who I connected better with um yeah I didn't really like that high school very much so I I won't name it um but um yeah it wasn't the most positive experience Mm. you said and and I had friends yes (laughs) sounded sounded like that was that was a first so what did you do after the sixth form so after sixth form, um, I actually took a year out. Um, I, I hadn't planned to take a year out, but it's funny the way things happen in life. Um, 
so tragedy struck my family um, in that my brothers died, my two twin brothers who were born, and they died very prematurely in the September when I was meant to start university. So I took time out. Um, I worked in a cheese factory for about six months, um, earned some money. And then with that money, I went to Australia for four months, literally ran away to the other side of the world, um, which was great fun as an 18 year old. And then when I came back, I moved to Dublin and started um, university here and stayed in Dublin ever since. Except that's not quite true, is it? Because you weren't in Dublin when I met you. <laughs> well, this is true. I've been in Dublin ever since, apart from when I haven't been here. So, <laughs> um, I did go traveling for two years and then also spent um, two years in Ethiopia living and working there. And that's where we met Jill. That, that is. Uh, and I wish we had met actually in Ethiopia, but, but like all things, we met on Zoom. We did. So let's let's take a step back. Then there was always an element. It sounds like that you you were going to tread your own path. There were certain things that you didn't take to, like the private school, and you, you didn't think you were in the right environment. Um, so as you say, you kicked up a first. You went to secondary school, and then you went all the way to the other side of the world to, it sounds like, to discover who you were. Am I close? Yeah, reflecting back, that probably is right. At the time, it did not feel like that. At the time, it felt, I thought I was being determined, but it probably looked, particularly to my mother, like I was just being stubborn. <laughs> um. I think I had been unable to ever hide if I'm not happy. And that's a, it's an advantage and it's a disadvantage. And I will react and cause a bit of change. And I think that's what was happening then. So yes, probably I was charting my own, my own path, but it, it didn't feel like I knew, I didn't have a path in mind. I just knew I wasn't on the right one at that moment in time. And so try another one roll the dice roll the dice okay roll the dice so you you had four months in australia you went back it feels a little bit like you settled down again and you went to dublin university yeah dublin felt like coming home so my grandmother was from dublin um and my my mum and my aunt would have grown up here and gone to school in dublin as well so when I said, you know, I'd got into Trinity College in Dublin, um, they both reacted as though, oh, you're going home. And in fact, the college I went to is where a number of my Nigerian ancestors had also been. So on both sides of my family, on the Magicodemy side and also on the Irish Leonard side, Dublin was home for both in my mind. So Talk to me then about that other side. Yeah, my uh, my grandfather was from Nigeria and he travelled to Dublin in the late 40s and lived and studied in Dublin where he met my grandmother. And that is how Dublin and Lagos came together to start my lineage. Yeah. 
So um, what did you study at Dublin University? English, English literature. English literature. And yeah. where did that take you? What happened next? What happened next? So whilst I was studying, I've always worked and done work experience throughout my, my whole time um, at university. And one of those pieces of work experience was voluntary work with Special Olympics, who were having their World Games in Dublin in 2003. And it was actually the first time those games had taken place outside of the States. And to just give you a sense of the scale of this, there were 30,000 volunteers involved in that. I think there were about 10,000 athletes. The thing was huge. The opening ceremony we had you two playing, Nelson Mandela turned up, the president of Ireland. It was massive. And so in 2003, um, I had been volunteering with Special Olympics for a year at that stage and was in this incredibly fortunate position of running the PR elements of one of the main venues. So after I finished studying the year after and I was looking for work, Special Olympics was a, an obvious place for me to kind of say, gosh, are there, are there any jobs? And there, there was in fundraising. And so I started down that path of working with Special Olympics, working in their fundraising department. You were part of this huge experience with you to Nelson Mandela moved into fundraising. Where did you go from there? The fundraising role within Special Olympics probably lasted about nine months, which was actually about three months longer than it should have. I remember we were about to launch this huge campaign with everything had built up until this moment and the Pope died. So we couldn't, we couldn't kind of do this big splash that we wanted to do. Um, it, always, it always makes me laugh now when I hear that there's a launch happening, because in the back of my mind is always this question of, but the Pope could die. Don't put all your <laughs> eggs in one basket just in case the Pope dies. Um, and after that, then there was maternity leave cover came up for somebody who was leading the, the media manager, leading all the press. And because I had a bit of background there, I'd done the work experience. I did her maternity leave cover. Um, actually thinking about it, maternity leave cover has always served me well actually throughout my career in different ways. Mm -hmm. And then also doing more work on a national games, um, working an event organization for, again, opening ceremonies, closing ceremonies. Um, so after that, so doing a few different roles within that, picking up different elements of experience there. Um, I, I kind of needed something a little bit more than the shorter term, you're doing something for six months and then change. They weren't in a position to offer any other security. So I, I got a job with an organization that was around responsible drinking and was launching Drink Aware in Ireland. And it was a really small team. There were just three of us when I started, but we would tap into the major alcohol organizations and the major alcohol companies who helped fund us and also working with the directors of marketing in all those companies to figure out what are we going to do in terms of promoting responsible drinking in Ireland. Um, and I really loved that work because it was small and, but we had great exposure to literally some of the best marketers in the country. 
what a growth opportunity there it was and got to write got to do research um and also understand i suppose some of the the, the politics of working in an environment like that um you had a health lobby who thought alcohol should be presented as a drug but on the other hand you had these marketers that were saying well if you tell young people that alcohol is a drug and ask them to log on to drugs.ie they're just not going to do it and they're not going to listen so understanding that balance between where the academic i suppose side is coming from but also how consumers hear information was a real dance and learning how to balance all of that you're part of a small team which mm -hmm. i usually find means that you get involved in an awful lot and if you're in a large team you can get a bit lost you just even hear a lot you you are exposed to a lot more even if you're not doing it so you get that fuller richer picture of what is actually happening mm -hmm. um on the flip side though being part of the small team means you you probably have a lot to do also um and that just one person being ill or distracted can can wreck the whole team dynamics mm -hmm. um so I can hear this buildup of uh, all, all based on the English, really, the English, the writing, the PR, media, then exposed to marketing, fundraising. Um, so what happened after Drink Away? I went traveling for two years. <laughs> okay. Went to uh, Central and South America, but a one way ticket to Cuba. I proceeded to go all the way down, uh, traveled with my now husband and we were away for two years. And honestly, jail people thought that we could see into the future because we left in August 2008 and the world seemed to collapse in September 2008 in terms of the economy. And we had thankfully not taken out loans to go traveling. We had saved for two years to have enough money to sustain us on a backpacker budget and that it did so by the time we came back we had missed the worst of the crash had built up two years of incredible experience and were definitely far more curious worldly streetwise all, all of these things that it's just brilliant to do all of the great things that come from from traveling and surviving on your own getting yourself into situations and then pulling yourself back out of them so you came back what happened then came back with a little bit of trepidation over how easy it might be to get work from everything we'd heard um i think Anna was just starting to emerge out of the crash in 2010 and you know, tapped into the network that I left behind of, you know, different people and putting the word out there. And I got a role as the marketing manager with a child rights NGO called Plan International in the Irish office. And again, quite a small team, bigger than three people, though, um, but quite a diverse team in terms of the types of people working there in terms of there were there were people who were more on the marketing kind of donation side. Um, but then there was also a, 
the larger team who was actually doing a lot of the program work. So the people who were specializing in development projects, um, particularly in West Africa. And so that was the role there. And that was really demanding and still people were feeling the pinch in terms of being able to donate money to different charities. Um, never mind one that was focused solely overseas. Um, but we you know we built up a, a good team from that marketing. I left, you know, after having built up then there was a social media, there was a press officer, um, there were fundraisers, dedicated fundraisers. But when it's when I started, I was doing everything, um, which was probably too much for one person's head. <laughs> and also I can hear this thread of uh, let me let me put it as doing good, doing good work. I can't hear that you joined a bank. I hear that you were volunteering for Special Olympics that yeah. uh, drink aware, now child rights NGO. Is that, is that yeah. a thread? Always been a thread to have purpose somehow feature in my life or in my work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what happened after this? You built this up? <laughs> Then the purpose went out of the window in, in some respects, because then I took a very sideways move into advertising. Uh -huh. um, so whilst I was working with Plan, I, I felt the need to understand the craft of advertising more. And so I did a postgrad diploma in the evening around digital communications and advertising. So I started to learn a little bit more about the art of copywriting, the craft of like forming a campaign, uh, concepts behind advertising. And from that, I was offered a role with an advertising uh, company here in, in Dublin. It was part of the uh, J. Walter Thompson network. And it was quite interesting because I'd been at Plan three years it was starting to feel a little bit repetitive or cyclical in terms of the campaigns. It's like, oh, here's Christmas again. And, you know, it felt like it wasn't fresh or new or challenging. And even though advertising, I'd never worked in advertising, I started that course saying I never want to work in advertising. It just seemed like a good leap. My idea was I would go work in advertising for a while, understand business better, understand that world better and then go back into the NGO space yeah learn the advantages learn the skills and everything uh -huh. in that different yeah. world and bring them back so that you can be even more useful yeah doing what you do. mm -hmm. and I loved it it was great there was something about having working with all these different clients um if if there was one client or one campaign that wasn't particularly great or fulfilling or fun to work on it'll be over in a few weeks and you'll be working on the next thing and I love that about it yeah I love that kind of dynamism you didn't know what you'd be working on next you're definitely an action person aren't you <laughs> or I just need change I don't know <laughs> action and uh uh, turnover and new newness so uh, after advertising them where did you go so I did I bought my soul back um 
when I was working for the advertising agency, I was contacted by somebody who said, we are looking for an advertising strategist who understands brand and media, who has experience in advocacy campaigns and understands girls' rights. And bizarrely, I had all those things between working in advertising, working for um, Drinkware and also for Plan International. And so that's when I started down the path where our paths crossed in that I, I moved to Ethiopia and worked for an organization called Girl Effect, which was all about creating this, they called it a branded media platform. Essentially, there was a whole suite of different media products. So we had a radio drama, um, we had music, music videos. We made a movie and when I left, I was just doing the strategy for the TV campaign and it's now actually a TV program um, in Ethiopia. I describe it as it's a bit like Glee in that there were five girls in a school and they would be bursting into song. And it was all about empowering girls. And my role there was a mix of behavior change strategy and setting the content, but also being the bridge of taking that research that came from a very academic development stance and translating it into something that writers and musicians We'll be able to create something out of and that was my role within the agency the production agency in ethiopia and when you look back on your time there in ethiopia mm. what, what difference do you think you made we did so much research to try and ask answer that question at the time but i genuinely believe that we won't know the difference we truly made for another 10 years, perhaps. If you think now about the, the songs and the TV shows that made a difference to you when you were a teenager that have this profound effect that you just kind of absorb at the time, but they stick with you, that's the type of work we were doing. And it's so hard to justify that more cultural aspect of development. People like to build schools or drill wells because you can see it and it's really easy to measure the number of children who go to school. It's harder to measure that a girl feels like she has a voice or that she feels empowered over the direction of her life. It's harder to measure whether um, parents are talking about or not talking about marrying their daughter off early and taking her out of school. It's, it's just not easy to measure those things. And yet they were the things that we were trying to change on a more personal behavior change and societal behavior change approach. And how you then trace that back to, well, that song made me think differently. Um, it's almost like you, when we measure things, we often want to look at them in isolation and directly say this one thing was caused by this thing but we always knew we were in this bigger change and just one part of a lot of things that were happening in Ethiopia at the time to support girls particularly teenage girls yeah extremely hard mm. to show that you make a difference 
when you're measuring a girl feels like she has a voice mm -hmm. <laughs> i was as you were talking i was thinking a bit like coaching when the companies are trying to prove what the return yeah. on investment and it's just that somebody feels better able to do their role <laughs> possibly yeah. so uh, and so while you were there you must have come across aspire yes and um, at the time I was working as a mentor for Aspire and we were paired up. And in fact, that pair, pairing process, I remember I was asked to look through this list of people of who I thought I wanted to be paired up with. And I always tried to pick people who were doing something that I had no clue what it was and it sounded fascinating. So I was really pleased to uh, be paired up with you and one thing that I would like you to talk about is something, something when you had an opportunity to go and join in, something to do with Bill Gates. Tell me about that. Joe, I've never heard that story. I, I didn't, I didn't, I never knew that you chose me, by the way, <laughs> that you had, <laughs> you had options. I never heard that before. Um, yeah, so this opportunity came in to go and be part of a think tank for the Gates Foundation. And it was taking place in Johannesburg in South Africa. And they wanted somebody from Girl Effect to go along. And I was chosen from the team. I remember, I do remember talking to you about this because, oh my God, Gates Foundation. I mean, they are they're huge in NGO circles, never mind just huge generally. Everyone's heard of them. They're a very huge, powerful, well-informed organization. The word think tank just felt like, wow, there's going to be all these brainiacs, you know, discussing things very seriously. Um, and they'll have PhDs and, and they'll have all this wealth of experience. And then to get flown somewhere, I mean, a lot of what we did was not quite on a shoestring, but we were we were careful with money. We weren't flying around all over the place. Um, so to get flown out there, yeah, I remember I was completely petrified and thought I've done no right to be in this room at this round table think tank discussion of behavior change prevention. Um, I felt like, a like the imposter syndrome is, well, it pops up on a regular basis, but that was, I think it was at its height uh, when that request came in. Um, I think luckily um, I do have a default yes. So I said yes. I never hesitated over saying yes. I just had a complete uh, crushing mind of doubt in between saying yes and actually going there one of the things that when you were talking about it um i linked that to a, a beginner's mindset mm. which uh, is one of the seven habits of highly effective people and actually there's a big advantage of being a person in the room who doesn't actually know everything and is prepared to sit and ask questions and and just sit there like a beginner. And I think we talked about that at the time. I remember, yeah, I be, it resonated so much with me because 
I'd never thought about it like that. I don't think I'd ever put those words together like that before. If I'd heard of mindsets at the time, it might have been in relation to a growth mindset. But actually, a beginner's mindset was really powerful because if you think about my job previous to that in advertising, every new client, I had to be a beginner. I'd go from knowing working on biscuits to working on, I don't know, toothpaste. It was, okay, so now we need to learn about the toothpaste industry. Uh, completely different. And it still stuck with me because I don't think I could do what I do today without having a beginner's mindset with every new project that I go into. Um, and so I did. I, I went there with a beginner's mindset and it meant that... I think within the room, when you come in with a beginner's mindset and there's a few other people who might be posturing slightly and kind of showing off with their knowledge, I find it's very disarming and you can actually get to a decent conversation much quicker when you're genuinely asking questions as opposed to asking questions that you think make you sound smart. And I think that's the gift of the beginner's mindset. And yes, because it's a, in a way you allow other people to relax and ask their own questions and they don't have to pretend they know everything. Yeah. And you're leading with your own curiosity because that's oh. the only place you can reach to for those questions because you can't reach to your knowledge base. You can maybe draw parallels or analogies, but you're just you're going to a genuine place of curiosity. And what happened then? Because you're now back from Ethiopia, you're in mm -hmm. Dublin. So, and the first time you went back, I didn't hear you search for a job and did CVs and everything else. I heard and I tapped into my network. So um, what happened when you went back to Dublin? Um, also tapped into the network. We knew we were coming back before we came back. So I think initially um, the role in Ethiopia was meant to be one year. One year just isn't long enough. So we stayed two years. And I do think at two years, if you're living abroad, after two years, you're almost making a commitment to the country. But up until then, it's kind of okay. You can, you can go back more easily. Um, and my husband, James, was starting his own path um, to study psychotherapy. And so that was about to start. So we knew we were going to come home that summer. So I started to ask a few questions and see what was around and what was new in Dublin. And at the time, there had been massive expansion of some of the big tech companies. So Google has its European headquarters here. So does Facebook, LinkedIn, PayPal. I was looking at these companies. And I thought, oh, I'm not really sure. And I found or I came across a newspaper article online of a place called The Dock, which was an innovation centre. And the Taoiseach, the Irish Prime Minister, had opened it. And that was the, the article I came across. And I went, oh, innovation. That sounds interesting. What's that? Um, and I heard it was about technology and AI blockchain, quantum computing, all these things I knew nothing about, but I could see how the, the world I was in, they, there was a lot of move towards using technology for development at the time. And 
that wasn't my area, but I thought this is interesting. And I, I think I just completed a form of interest. I think I just put in my details onto, are you interested in roles? There was no specific role. And then I got a call by a recruiter saying, I see you've got, you do workshops on your CV. I'd mentioned workshops. We have a role as a workshop designer. <laughs> I kind of burst out laughing. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I was like, that's a role. I mean, I love workshops. I love designing workshops. I love facilitating workshops. I love participating in workshops. Are you serious that this is a role? Absolutely. And I thought similar to advertising that I would come here, um, learn what AI is and how it works, um, and then leave after a couple of years and go back to work for an NGO with equipped with all this new technological knowledge similar to how I did in advertising, learn a bit about business and then go back. And how's that working out? <laughs> well, I was still here. What, what interestingly happened was this incredible place is about 250 people who work here at the dock. So I was doing workshops for clients, some very high level clients in some of the world's you know, top 100 companies. And a lot of the technological things that we were exploring or ideating were pretty much possible. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard for a lot of people to imagine things that aren't technically possible. But the questions around should we do that as opposed to can we do that were the ones I was more interested in. And I was actually very heartened to end up in some really interesting conversations with some senior executives, they were also really interested in those should we questions. Should we automate this kind of whole department, for example, or, or set of tasks or skills? Should we be using AI like that to make those decisions? That was where my interest was. And so I started exploring ways to to kind of think about that and see what was out there in the world and it actually became the mission of the dark was to to pioneer conscientious innovation and we started looking at the consequences of innovation how it impacts people and society so i started doing more and more of that work sustainability started getting put on the agenda a lot more responsibility, inclusion, diversity, all these areas, not in terms of a charitable side of the organization that was just stuck on to the main business strategy, but how to actually embed it in. And it's such a tricky, complicated thing to go from not having it part of your core business to actually embedding it in throughout. It's not an easy thing to do practically or emotionally for a lot of people who work in an organization it's a huge culture shift and so then as part of that um, a role came up within the organization to to lead out a team um, who are the human sciences studio and i'm now the director of this team um, i literally had the best job in all of accenture jill without a doubt we are a team of almost 20 people all our work is grounded in the human sciences. So by that, I mean sociology, psychology, philosophy, anthropology, behavioral economics. Um, and we, we use that. And also we have a great creative uh, 
group of people and uh, also some creative specialists in the team to connect that to the business problems that our clients are facing. So we're always looking at the, the human and the societal challenges that underpin those business challenges. It's fascinating work. And it's almost as if instead of going in there, learning and taking what you can and bringing it back out to do, it's almost as if you've taken the outside in. You've Yeah, that's why I'm still here. And I didn't think it was possible within a massive organ- commercial organisation like Accenture I didn't think it would be possible to find a role like this it sounds like you created a role like that Mm. but if the yes and the traction was also there with massive support of people and also the interest genuine interest from the clients we work with to create the demand for us Mm -hmm. Because if that wasn't there, we wouldn't last very long. And you always say we. I've got a a sense that a lot of it was I. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but there's only so much one person can do, right? That's true. Nothing, we can do nothing of significance alone, as John Maxwell would put it. Yeah. Um, because everyone but, in the team, all the researchers, I, I would say that they're all far smarter than me. Like if I tried to outsmart them in the respective disciplines, I would I'd, <laughs> I would have a very sorry time. Um, but again, it's that beginner's mindset. If you know, when I'm talking to someone who's got deep specialism in organizational psychology, I mean, I'm not completely new to it, but I don't know what they know. Or if I'm talking to somebody who is... Um, a data ethicist being able to have that beginner's mindset and connect it back has been absolutely critical to what I do Mm -hmm. thank you for that gift all those years ago (laughs) and also though it's just showing that leaders very senior managers leaders actually can't stay with the detail can't stay with it they can't possibly know everything that all the, the experts know but they do know how to lead people I think if I tried to know everything, I'd burn out so ridiculously quickly. Yeah. Um, Leadership is a different skill. Yeah. I do like, um, I do like my design history, which, um, so when I first joined the doc, I did a master's in design history at the National College of Art and Design. Um, it was the first time I've studied something because I was genuinely just interested in it as opposed to just making sense for my career. But oddly, it now makes a lot of sense for my career. It came back the other way. Um, I was just interested in the topic and I'm just fascinated by ordinary things. So, and I ended up doing my thesis on robotic vacuum cleaners. But really when you that was the thesis and the case study I used, but ultimately it was about how we as humans exist and live alongside technology. And that is pretty much an underlying thread between almost everything I work on and a lot of the questions that come into us as clients. 
they don't always present themselves in such a philosophical format. What does it mean to live with technology? But that is something that sits um, across a lot of our work. I've just looked up the name of your thesis. Yes. <laughs> we ought to tell everybody. It was called, what was it called? It was called Robots That Suck. Which would make you want to read it, which is why you were good at advertising and marketing and everything else. <laughs> So, Jess, I asked you if you could come up with what have you learned along the way? We've pulled out a few things as we've been going. So um, what's your first one that you would say everybody can benefit from? So when you asked me this, I, I thought about the different roles that I've had and what I've learned from them. So I think the first one from working in fundraising I learned how to hear no and carry on regardless. It can be a really tough slog working in fundraising and you hear no a lot. And if you take it personally, you'll get crushed quite quickly. So hearing no, shake it off, move on, pick up the phone again. And I think Paul Martinelli, when he was doing sales, would say a no is just a not yet or a not now. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's number two? I think between probably a few different organizations, but I particularly when I was working in plan um, and drink aware was when you work in teams where there is diversity of thought. Diversity is coming up a lot at the moment in terms of diverse teams, diverse organizations. And I think a lot of people want to work. I definitely want to work in a diverse team, but I'm very aware that it can actually make your head hurt a lot. It's not easy because you end up working with people who it could be the way they think or the way they communicate. It can just make you frown and you really have to listen and hear what they're saying and reflect on it to get the best out of that diversity. And so it isn't easy. It doesn't just click. I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it too, yeah. but you're, you're right. It's hard. It's hard going. And there really has to be a main reason and purpose for, for doing it that everybody knows. Yeah. Uh, so what's number three? Number three, is a question about who gets to call themselves creative. And this was something I learned in advertising. I've always dressed quite colorfully, Jill. I think sometimes I look at my wardrobe in the morning and just see how many different colors I can put on between um, my top, my bottoms, my shoes. And in advertising and in design circles, for some reason, there's a lot of black tops, black trousers kind of normcore vibes is what I think the uh, style is called um, and I dress anything but normcore and it was quite interesting because people would just remark on the fact you know I had I think a pair of silver shoes at the time gosh you must be so creative and I didn't feel creative my instinct was to say oh no I'm not <laughs> no, I'm not creative and 
slowly I just let people think it based on my appearance. I mean, gosh, I've been judged enough on my appearance. Let them take this one as a positive one. So let them think I'm creative. And then I didn't say anything. I didn't contradict them. And then I think I just became it. And it was almost like a freeing thing to go, all right, if you think I'm creative, how about this idea? And I probably became more creative just because other people thought I was. And I think it's really interesting in an, in an industry like advertising, they, they actually divide people into, oh, you're creative or you're a suit. That's what they call them, suits, when they work more on the account side. And actually, there's some brilliantly creative suits. And there's very, some very uncreative creatives. Um, so I think this idea of giving yourself permission to be creative. And now, of course, you're at the heart of innovation with your role. So very definitely around uh, being creative. And you've talked a lot about curiosity and asking questions, which is all in that uh, sage space, I would say. So what's number four? Well, I think we, we spoke about it a little bit already, but it was around the sense of having a beginner's mindset and how that can actually be a strength, not a disadvantage. Um, and I think every new piece of work that I now go into, I, I think I just embrace a beginner's mindset from the start. It makes it more exciting, actually. And I think you've you made that observation about um, how very action orientated or need change, but maybe it's just that sense of needing to have new information flowing in. And I think having that beginner's mindset sets me up quite nicely for that and so many people i'm hoping people are listening that it's okay not to know everything just just relax and be in for the ride mm. and it can be exciting uh so uh, number five i think there's one about always keep learning which i think is connected to the beginner's mindset um and this comes back to how, how I decided to do the, the masters in something that design history, it's not obvious that it would lend itself to supporting a career in innovation. But actually, when I followed my curiosity and I kept learning, it actually accelerated my career where I am now in innovation and it got me to where I am today having that academic rigor and that understanding of the arts and humanities and how to connect that through to the client work it was a great grounding in that and a very definite following your gut yes yeah yeah and you were doing another master's at the same time weren't you when you did that no, that was what, no, I did one master's, but I was working in the dark when I did the master's in design history. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and was there a final one? A final one, when you had asked me about my career overall, the one thing that has always stuck with me when I look back and sometimes people have asked me, is there a thread that combines them all? It's not really, but I've always been open to surprises. I've never been able to predict my next job. And even now, if you ask me what might I do next, like I just couldn't tell you what it could be. I never thought I'd end up in a 
technology consulting organization when I was in Ethiopia. When I worked in advertising, I never thought my next move would be to Ethiopia. When I was working for a child rights organization, I didn't think I'd end up in advertising. And I can pedal all this way back to studying English literature. I don't think I could have predicted the next move. So I was always open to surprises. And when something, an opportunity came along and I went, oh, that's unexpected. That was a cue for me to find out more. Always be open to surprises. You've never been able to predict your next job. And in some respects, I feel with the pace of the world and your adaptability, maybe the next job hasn't even been created yet, Jess. Yeah. <laughs> maybe like, I need to create it. How about that? <laughs> maybe you need to create it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been fascinating to hear your journey through life and how you've gone in what sounded like different directions, but it's very definitely got a thread through it. So it's been uh, interesting for me to reconnect with you. And I know that there will be people listening who, who just need to be brave and follow, be open to surprises. I hope so. It's been delightful connecting with you again, Jill. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. You're more than welcome. Thank you for being my guest on the Leadership Woman podcast. And today, my guest is Jess Magico. No, no, no. <laughs> Magico to me. Thank you. We'll start at where and when you were born and we'll just take a track through and we'll we'll get to these. Okay? Okay. <laughs> okay, she says. You look as if you're about to be hung. <laughs> <laughs>